But we are in a series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are taking big sections at a time, kind of looking at the themes uh, of Hebrews. And so we've been reading long texts. I tried to cut one down today and then threw in a whole other chapter from the Old Testament. And so uh, we do have some long sections to read. Um, last week we talked about Melchizedek. Uh, and how he was great, and how he was greater than Abraham, who again was a huge hero and figure, and again on the Mount Rushmore of Jewish history. And yet the author of Hebrews says Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and then puts Jesus into the mix and says, but Jesus is greater than all of them. And so as we've looked week in and week out at the true and better in Christ, and the true and better covenant, and the true and better um, high priest and all the true and better Moses and all of the different true and betters that Jesus is compared to what was before. We talked about the new covenant last week and how it's based on better promises, eternal, lasting, divine promises. Today we're going to zoom in on Jesus as the true and better sacrifice. We've talked about Jesus being the true and better sacrifice in the past weeks, but that's because Hebrews has a lot of kind of repeating themes or presenting a theme and then going deep on an aspect of it. And so uh, we're going to talk about Jesus as the true and better sacrifice uh, for the whole message this morning, even though we've touched on that in previous weeks. Uh, his sacrifice, of course, was a big part in his priesthood, his true and better priesthood, and the new and better covenant that God has given his people. Uh, and so we're going to unpack Hebrews 9 and 10 a little bit, or uh, half of 10. I'm going to read Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, and then we're going to go to 15, then we're going to pick up in 22. I'll tell you when we take these detours, hopefully. Um, but I didn't want to cover all of the text just for the sake uh, of time, or read all of the text. Um, so starting in Hebrews chapter 9, picking up in verse 11, the words should be on the screen. I think I edited the slides correctly. And it picks up like this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jump down to verse 22. <clears throat> Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Chapter 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Sorry, that's a sermon in itself. Um, We've mentioned before, that Christ is the true and better high priest of the new covenant. And I said last week that the new covenant is based on better promises. Uh, It's based on the true and eternal tabernacle of heaven as opposed to the one made by men. The author of Hebrews makes this clear, right? The the tabernacle in the Old Testament wasn't even uh, a fixed structure, right? It It was mobile. They had to take it down and set it up as they were moving around. And yet, the presence of the Lord could be found in the Holy of Holies. And then even when the temple came, what's a fixed structure, right? Brick and mortar, still not as great as the tabernacle established in heaven by God because they were made by men. And we've mentioned how Jesus' one-time-for-all-time sacrifice was better than the repeated sacrifices of animals under the Old Covenant. The verses I just read uh, are a zoom-in on this truth, right? To say, okay, why is it better? How is it better? How is he true and better than this sacrifice, the old sacrifices? To help us appreciate the freedom and finality of Christ's sacrifice, I want us to revisit the sacrifice of atonement as laid out in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews calls us back to this too. In the verses I skipped, um, he kind of does a recap of the Leviticus um, details um, about the sacrifices in the Day of Atonement, but I want to read kind of the full account of the Day of Atonement. Uh, It's in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, These are the OG instructions to try to paint a more exhaustive picture of what was required of the priest in order to make atonement for the sin of the people. 
It's a detailed, impeccable process which reeks of severity, right? When something's that detailed, when God is like, listen, here's the steps. Don't skip any. Don't go back. Don't try to combine any. He's sending a message of this is serious business. And so he's sending a message communicating how serious sin is and how serious the problem of sin is and how helpless the people are to remove their own sin. God wanted them and wants us to view our sin um, in not smaller than it actually is, right? We should see sin as a big problem. But we also need to maintain an even greater view of our God, that he is capable of handling that sin. And so let's hear Leviticus 16 for a reminder of the old covenant sacrifices. Uh, I may go quickly. Again, this is just to paint a picture of how detailed the process was. So if you get lost, that's a little bit kind of the point. Um, Don't get frustrated. Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take them from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one one lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that it is over the testimonies that he does not die. So there's a lot going on here and there's a little mention of like you could die if you get this wrong. So just, you know, pay attention. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atonement for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. 
And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put away, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the land of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in the holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go Azazel, go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and um, their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and battle his, bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And that shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall inflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in, the father's, in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. That's a lot. Can you imagine the pressure of the high priest <laughs> having to get all that right on his own? I was just, as I read that, I was thinking, if you do seven times, what if you lose track? Have I done six? Is it seven? Is it eight? Have I done enough? East first, then what? Like, that's, and that's just one little part of what had to be done. I wanted to read the whole chapter in hopes that you would hear and feel the minutia of what was being prescribed by the Lord. The chapter kicks off with a reference to Aaron's two sons, their names Nadab and Abihu, who were struck dead for offering what the Bible calls unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, right? These were two um, priests who did not take their, um, their office seriously, did not take their practices seriously, and the Lord took their lives. God is serious about his holiness. Leviticus 16.2 in the translation I read says Aaron is not to come at any time into the holy place, which almost sounds, if you read it the wrong way, like he's just not to ever come into the holy place. Like he, at, at no time should he come, right? The CSB, I think, is a little more of a readable translation. It says Aaron is not to come whenever he wants into the holy place. It's not a, oh, I'll just go visit that now, or I'll get around to it when I get around to it, or I have access to the holy place on my terms. God sets the rules. Entrance was only allowed on God's terms, and at certain very limited times, and under, as we heard, very specific circumstances. This atonement ceremony was only once a year, and only one person could enter the Holy of Holies, but not before purifying himself, and the space, and the instruments, the altars, etc., and even this one person was limited in their access or interaction with the Lord. 
verse 13, which you may have missed because I was speed reading, which I don't blame you. It mentioned burning incense that a cloud would cover the mercy seat. This is basically veiling the presence of the Lord from even the high priest so that he doesn't look upon the presence of the Lord and die. So even though he's in the Holy of Holies, interacting with the presence of the Lord or the mercy seat of the Lord, there's still this idea of you cannot look directly upon me lest you die. The only one person allowed in the presence of God still could not look upon the Lord. A whole bull was sacrificed just to get this one high priest into the area. It's blood sprinkled all over the place. You think about how messy and gross just practically that is to have blood sprinkled everywhere. But see, blood represents life. And so in this ceremony, in this sprinkling of blood and covering things with blood, it's not this morbid kind of like, oh, death oozes everywhere. Basically, it's saying death and sin have stained all of this. And so when we sprinkle blood on it, we're covering death with life. The idea that life covers the dead, the sin, the broken, the stained. We lose some of that in, when we don't understand the meaning or the symbol of what's happening. And once the priest and his household sins were covered, then he could continue to pursue atonement for the people. Note that there were two goats, and they cast lots to determine which one would be a sacrifice to the Lord and which one would serve as the scapegoat. Designated for, in the ESV, it says Azazel. Other translations say the uninhabitable place. Azazel is just this terminology for the wilderness, this place that we don't go, this place that is not thought of, right, or, or, or spoken of. Uh, it's kind of out, of out of sight, out of mind. This idea that the sins go into the wilderness away from us. This is where we get our term scapegoat, right? The modern use of a person who takes the blame even though they're not responsible. This goat didn't do anything wrong. The lot just fell on him. And so the sins are symbolically placed on the goat to be sent out and never seen again. It's really a beautiful picture of God sending our sin or their sin as far as the east is from the west, right? And so they had this picture before them that their sins were being sent away from them, removed from them. It's still incomplete because it had to be repeated every year, but still beautiful. And I don't know if you noticed that everyone who made some purifying sacrifice or act had to then cleanse themselves again and change clothes as they were deemed stained in the process of taking care of the impurities, right? And so we see the the incomplete, the insufficient, as humans are going through these motions of atonement, that as they interact, they are the ones who are marred or stained, and so they have to keep purifying and changing and cleansing themselves. The man who walked the goat into the wilderness, had to bathe and change. The priests, after doing some of these things, had to then, again, bathe and change. All of this, the mess of death, blood, sacrifice, rewashing, redressing, every little detail of cleansing, and if you can visualize it, it's all from the Holy of Holies outward. So you can see the symbolism in this, even in how God works, starting with the Holy of Holies, the presence of the Lord, purification began internally and works out towards the people. Cleansing, purification starts in the presence of God and moves outward. 
All of this was to be done annually in perpetuity to remind the people of their sin and their need for forgiveness and their need for justification. Justification is the idea of being made right before the Lord, being able to stand before the Lord with a clean slate, right, with no guilt or sin on you so that they could maintain fellowship with him. That's just what we were singing, right? It's not, I'm not even, just, not even seeking your blessing, Lord, just your presence, just to be with you. That's what the people desired, but they couldn't do that with sin, right? And so they had to atone for the sin so that they could maintain fellowship with God. So this is the context of Hebrews 9 and 10, which present Jesus as the true and better sacrifice for sinners. The author of Hebrews has continued to emphasize Jesus as the true and better. He's the true and better sacrifice because his death, his blood shed for us, was able to cover all sin, past, present, and future, one time for all time. His atoning death was really what the believers throughout history have been trusting in by faith, even though they had not yet seen that promise unfold Old Testament believers, those who really trusted in God by faith, are trusting in the fact that he will take care of my sin. He has promised redemption. He has promised a Savior. And by faith, we trust in that. That's how Old Testament people were saved, just like we are. We just have a name for the Savior, right? We're on the other side of the act in history. But back to how Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Remember, the priest had to atone for their own sin before dealing with the people's sin, not Jesus. He had no sin of his own. Once again, he is true and better because he serves as the true and better priest and the true and better sacrifice. He is the priest who offers himself as the sacrifice. Notice the reference again this week to Jesus sitting down after offering himself as the true and better sacrifice. We see it in verse 12 of chapter 10, which I read this morning. We saw it way back in chapter 1, verse 3. And it was referenced again in chapter 8, verse 1. Finishers sit down. Workers who aren't finished don't get to sit down. I was thinking of some different random examples of this, right? Some sharks have to keep moving to live. Some bike messengers, as I mentioned previously, have to keep pedaling to move. They can't coast. Some people, nurses, security guards, mothers, don't get to sit because they're constantly on the move doing something for someone else. Did you know there were no chairs in the tabernacle? Priests didn't take breaks. They were in there to work, to get stuff done, not to sit and admire the tapestries or breathe in the incense. If they were on duty in the tabernacle, they were working, they were standing, they were moving. Then along comes Jesus, the true and better priest of a true and better tabernacle, offering the true and better sacrifice. And after he offered himself as sacrifice, he sat down. I don't know why it's such a big deal to me. I'd love that. He sat down. He did his job, and it was finished. There's no question, right? It's not like I quit and I sit down, or I give up and I sit down, or there's more to do and I'll get to it later and sit down. He finished and sat down. His work was sufficient, one time for all time. And it's not just his work that was sufficient, but it's application and effectiveness in justifying us that is sufficient too. We don't see this necessarily written out explicitly in Hebrews, but I think we miss this side of things a lot 
This is not merely a case of Jesus not having to die over and over again as we read because his death was good one time for all time, but that the transfer of his righteousness to us by faith is also good one time for all time. At verse 14 of chapter 10, it says, he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. We are completely justified before God when we are made spiritually alive by grace through faith. Even though we still sin, we're still being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, we're still imperfect in that sense, we are justified before God for all time. We're sanctified until we die, and then we're glorified for all eternity. But as soon as you become spiritually alive, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, not your sin. Hebrews 10, 17 quotes Jeremiah 31 again when God establishes the new covenant. He said he will remember our sins no more. Just as Jesus rested from his atoning work, we enter rest spiritually. We don't need to try and earn God's favor or forgiveness. We don't need to be born again over and over and over again. We were made alive by faith and we're to walk in faith, but there's no danger of losing your salvation. We don't need to reapply the finished work of Jesus as if it can wear off like sunscreen, like it's only good for a time, like it works, but man, we've gone too far astray or I've messed up too bad this time or my faith has wavered and I've doubted some. It's not you, Jesus, it's me, right? Sometimes we think, no, I know you're perfect, but I'm not, and so I need to, to, to get saved again or I need to be born again again. I know your sacrifice was lasting, but my faith wasn't strong enough. No. Our salvation is not based on the strength or size or consistency of our faith, but on the object of our faith. And he is sufficient. And his atonement applied to anyone is good for all eternity. Do you ever uh, read the fine print on some so-called lifetime warranties? A lifetime warranty makes it sound like you're covered for forever. But the fine print often reads that you're only covered for regular wear and tear or normal use of a product. In other words, if something extreme or wackadoo rocks your world and an elephant steps on your iPhone, you're not covered. Because that's a strange, extreme circumstance. The blood of Jesus is not a weak lifetime warranty with fine print loopholes. You're covered for everyday use. You're covered for slip-ups, doubts, wavering faith, spiritually dry seasons, rebellion, disobedience, extreme circumstances. Do not threaten the saving power of Christ who promised he would never leave you or forsake you and from whose love we read, nothing can separate us. If you are in Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and in Christ forever. Depending on your musical preferences, it's like Andre 3000 said, forever, ever, or Randy Travis said, forever and ever, amen. It's eternal coverage. You don't have to re-up to keep the policy active. But how often do our lives reveal a lack of faith or understanding in this truth, this freedom? We live like his sacrifice wasn't for all time or its application has worn off. We live like we're under the old covenant. 
I'm about to throw my parents under the bus, but I would do it if they were here, I promise. Something that always puzzled me or bothered me a little bit about my parents was when they switched from a landline with a cord to a cordless landline. We're not even to the days of cell phones yet. Just a cordless telephone, right? Groundbreaking technology. I gave them my cordless phone when I graduated college and got a cell phone because I was progressing with the rest of the world. Got rid of a landline. But bless their hearts, they would use it to make or take calls and they would enjoy the technology somewhat, the freedom to kind of move about the house when they were on the phone. But they always hung it back up on the base in the kitchen. And so every time the phone rang, they would have to get up from where they were, go into the kitchen to the base, and pick up the phone. Like cave people, right? All you have to do is push a button, hang it up. Now it's on. Oh, now it's hung up. It's just a button. Set it, set it with you. It's like a mobile home for your house, right? But no. Rather than enjoying the freedom and taking full advantage of the luxury that came with a cordless phone, they decided not to do that. They could have just kept it with them in the living room, right? Until the end of the day. And then you put it there to charge or whatever. See, the phone was capable, right? The freedom was accessible, but their mindset was stuck in the old patterns, the old ways, when you grow up having to always put the phone where it goes, in the kitchen, on the cradle, right? But how many times do we live like we're still under that old covenant? Not that we're physically washing ourselves or killing animals and sprinkling blood, but we try to work our way back into God's good grace or think it's our works that keep us in God's favor when the blood of Jesus has set us free from the toil of works and rituals, and purification ceremonies. Quit thinking that you need more faith or more works to make your salvation stick. Do we need to continue to walk and grow in faith? Yes. Do we need to remind ourselves of the good news and respond with, the, with obedience, the obedience of works, out of love for what Christ has done? Yes. But our eternal salvation is secure because it's guaranteed by Christ's work, not ours. Our account is settled forever. Because Jesus was the true and better sacrifice, sufficient to save us one time for all time. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can look at a passage like today, zoom in all the way back, travel back in time to the Old Testament to see what the Old Covenant was about, the detail, the toil, the work, the seriousness, and God, the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. You tell us in your word, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. We see in your word that as your presence was so limited, even to the high priest, the one person in all of Israel who could enter the Holy of Holies. And then in the new covenant of Christ, the veil is torn. And it's not once a year for one person limited access to your presence, but it is 24-7 for all eternity your very presence indwells us in the new covenant. 
Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross, laying down your life, that we might be forgiven, that our sins might be forgotten, so that we can enjoy fellowship with God. As we read last week in the New Covenant, the promise from you, God, that you will be our God and we will be your people. That's what it's all about. Taking care of our sin problem so that we can be in relationship, fellowship with you. God, I pray for anyone in this room who who struggles with that idea of lasting application. I think it's easiest for us to understand that Jesus' sacrifice is a once for all. It's, it's, it's good. He doesn't have to get back up on that cross, but I think we're tempted to believe that maybe my faith is too weak or my faith has not lasted, and so I need to be born again, again. And yet Scripture does not show us that. We can pray things like restore to us the joy of our salvation. We can pray things like, Lord... Uh, Let me set aside all of the the weights and the distractions that we get so entangled with so that we can continue to run the race. But God, we're not going back to the starting line. We don't have to qualify for the race. The race is set before us. Victory is secured. The sacrifice is sufficient. God, I pray that as we walk in your grace, we would be reminded to extend your grace to others to point others to Jesus in word and in deed, that they would recognize us as your children by our love for one another, love for them, love for you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.